Welcome to Realty Talk, the show that brings together the country's most authoritative and respected property experts. Follow us on all the socials and subscribe for updates and exclusive offers. Realty Talk is powered by realty.com.au, connecting buyers, sellers and agents differently. Greetings and welcome to this week's Realty Talk, the longest running and most popular property show in Australia. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance, and we've got a lot of leading edge info to share with you today. Now, it's been proven that the difference between the best investors and the rest is the quality of their investment strategy. So to shed more light on this, we're joined by a successful active investor turned buyer's agent, Rusty Vibehav from Get Rare Properties, who's recently released his great book, The Property Blueprint. Now, does size matter when it comes to property? Well, to challenge its myth, we're joined by thought-leading property market analyst and head of research at National Buyers Agency Propertyology, Simon Presley, who's recently analysed our nation's best-performing property markets over the last five years. The Adelaide property market is currently enjoying its highest growth spurt in values in over 30 years. So the big question on everyone's lips is what's driving this historic growth? Well, to answer this, we're joined by leading Adelaide real estate agent and host of the popular pizza and property podcast, Todd Sloan. And to finish the show, I continue with our part four of our special auction winning series by deep diving on the importance of auction psychology. We've got a lot to unpack, so let's get on with the show. Greetings and welcome. Now, in the current asset boom that we're experiencing in most investment classes at the moment, I get very concerned when I see a lot of investors getting caught up in the herd hysteria of the fear of missing out or FOMO to chase property rewards without considering the risks. So to add some balance to the reward versus the risk equation, we're joined by a successful active investor turned buyer's agent, Rusty Vibehav from Get Rare Properties, whose strong investment background has seen him devote an entire chapter of his new book, The Property Blueprint, to this very important subject. So welcome back to Realty Talk, Rusty. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you so much. Rusty, uh, I know that you're a very firm believer that risks are underrated in the property industry. So let's start with how you define risks. Sure. Uh, before I talk about my definition, I typically would love to share that what is a typical understanding of risk. And people talk about that it's, a, first of all, it's not really, it's a dirty word. Not many people want to talk about it. And B, for them, uh, they, they define it as a capital preservation as other risk of losing money. Now, that's a very traditional definition in the minds of people who don't really know about much about investing. But coming from a financial markets background, the way we like to define in the, as, in, as in the financial literature is more about risk of unknown, like as a volatility, like it can go up and down as well. So, and that actually is a very good point from the viewpoint that it can be of two types, a downside risk where we are losing money, but then there's also upside risk, which whereby it is delivering a lot more than what we had. So the reason I shared this two different definitions that a traditional and a more of a modern or a financial literature definition is that lots of people get too much worried about risk as well. And what they say, no, I don't want to invest money because I might lose money. Now, I do challenge them and ask them that that's perfectly fine. You keep money in your bank. Of course, you 
on change over there or as, as the interest rates are super low. Uh, now, there are far more bigger risks around it as well. And the risk of not meeting your goals, not meeting your aspirations, being so dependent on your active income, like as in like a human capital. So, so the way I say is that definition of risk is that it's, it's a risk of unknown downside and upside risk. Yeah, beautifully and, said. Um, and just to add on to it, like risk and returns are two sides of the same coin. They have to be going together. And for any potential investor, they should be looking at the ratio as in risk adjusted returns that what they're getting out of it. Because if it's a consistent five cents in a dollar, if it's consistent, might be meaningful to someone, especially when people are retired towards their retirement age versus you know, uh, 10 cents in a dollar, which can be two cents in a, in a year, particular one. So someone who can take the volatility, that means there's a, there's a more shift in the expectation of the returns will be considered more risky from that perspective as otherwise. Yeah, yeah nicely said. It, that puts a, a very different slant on, on risk itself in terms of the opportunity side of it. So uh, sort of drilling down a bit then, Rusty, what, what are the risks in the property context? Look, there's quite a fair bit of risk involved in property investing. But before I get into it, I would also say that there's a far bigger risk of not taking any risk. Because if I look at, like one of the research says that 56% of Australians will not have enough money, even at the age of 65, to retire upon. Now, to me, that's a far bigger risk of not doing anything. So there's an opportunity cost. Yes, there's a downside risk that whatever you do today, you might lose, but there's an upside risk, as I said before, that as a, on a long-term average, property has been a wonderful asset class. Of course, we have to be mindful of the, specific, the risk specific to the properties as well. So I'll touch base upon few um, on that, if, if, if that's okay. So first yes. of all, it's a, it's a market risk, a market risk, which basically saying that market might fall or the property value might go down. Um, but then to me, that's also an opportunity because not always, if you go by the law of averages, it has gone more up than down. Yep. So long-term, it should be all right. Yep. The other one is a property risk, like risk specific to the property. What if there is a storm? What if uh, you know, um, uh, the, the, the building collapses or the wall falls over? So of course, there, there are ways to mitigate them. Maybe if it's okay, maybe I'll share how to mitigate them as well because Knowing the risk is not enough. We have to also know how we should be embracing them, how we should be mitigating them. Would that be okay, Roshi? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So for, for market risk, it's more about how we go about diversifying it. Because, because diversification, the great thing about property is in Australian market context is we have multiple markets within the market. So, and, and as, a, as a smart investor or a strategic investor, one can choose to buy properties in diversified locations. Because when it is not synchronous markets, what it means is that if one property is going up, second one is probably might be lower. So that might be on the downside, but on the better side of things, it's like when the, some properties are not doing so well, there will be other properties which will be holding their value very well. So diversification is the key thing. Also the research around like buying the properties in, in those areas which are the supply and demand equation is tilting towards the growth, but the demand is more than the supply. Yep. So, so that's how we can take care of the market risk. When it comes to the property risk, it's all about buying the sound properties, getting, making sure that a, a professional building and test inspector is going out there, 
looking at the quality of the property at the time of purchase, but even beyond that, it should be more about the how as an investor you are maintaining the property because sometimes it's easy to fix a small issue before it becomes a larger one. And of course, having a kind of a landlord insurance or building insurance as well, so that in case something goes, you know, like a storm comes, there's no, not much one can do, but insurance cover would actually help us. Third type of the risk I would talk about is the interest rate risk in the sense that, okay, what if the interest rate, especially when we are at the, such a low end of the market, it will go up. It has to go up because that is the, uh, I guess, the one of the lever that RBA or, you know, the government uh, professionals or officials can actually pull to, to sustain the market in the longer run. Yeah. But as an investor, we have to be mindful of it. You have to be conscious that what has been the average rate. And of course, banks, when they are lending money, they are conscious of that. But as an investor, we have to be mindful of our own buffers out there. So having healthy buffer for the properties that we have, um, maybe one of the tactics would be to fix the loan for some time. Uh, because that, then we know exact cash flow irrespective of what happens with the RBA cash rate. Other type of the risk that people are very worried about because I get to see or hear a lot is about the bad tenants and the vacancies. Because we are relying that the mortgage payment will be covered, almost covered by the rental payments that we receive. But what if there's a bad tenant? Or what if there's a vacancy in the property? Now, again, it comes down to the due diligence of buying in those areas where the demand is, is higher. That means there will be always a demand for the tenants to live in the property. Now, what we also have seen that they might, it might not be the case and sometimes the case of not really having the right property manager. So I've always believed that property investing is a business and property manager as well as the tenant are stakeholders of your business. Yep. If we treat our tenants nicely, if there's a reasonable request from the tenant, always, always listen with an open, open mind that it might be worthwhile. Also not really overly charging them or you know, going for a meager rates because then sometimes for the sake of getting a quick tenant, we are probably compromising on the quality of the tenant. So having a quality property manager, again, that's something that really people think about the pricing only, the fees, whether 6% plus GST or 8% plus GST, they're worth the salt when it comes to the quality they can offer. So having that kind of assessment of the, of, of the tenant and the presenting the property, We'll make sure, and also the pricing of our property. Like, let's not be greedy. It's, it's more about getting the right tenant and have a longevity of the tenant in the property that will help. So another thing that I talk about is overcapitalization. And what it means is that we should take investment as an investment only, not really taking as an emotional aspect, not really paying over too much for the property when it's not deserving that money or even when it comes to renovation. So the idea is that we should follow a strict budget when it comes to any A, a purchase, or B, as a renovation. Something that I also talk about is cash flow and liquidity, uh, which is more around, okay, what's, what's really happening? Because most of the time, like when we are working on building our portfolio, we always feel that, okay, we should, you know, someone who gets, uh, I guess, the bug of buying multiple properties very quickly, uh, we have to be very mindful of that what might happen later on, because are we actually biting more than what we can chew or, or it is just realistic and we are taking the right amount of opportunity at the same time, keeping the buffers with us. So not really overdoing it is, is also 
one of the aspects that we look at. And maybe if I can touch upon a different type of risk, which is a personal risk. Now, what it means is that, yes, we are building our property portfolio, but we as a property owner are a significant part of this business of investing. We have to really make sure that we as individuals are covered from our, with, with, with the right insurance cover. So when I'm saying, so what I really mean is that in the life cover, trauma, TPD, even income protection, that has to be there. And that's how we say that, okay, these are the risks. If you know them, then they are not really unknowns anymore. We can go and tackle one at a time, look at how we can avoid them or mitigate them. And sometimes like a market risk, we should embrace them. Yeah. Yeah, very well said. So just to, to conclude then, because you've, you've covered a lot of uh, territory uh, already there, Rusty, uh, should should we avoid all of the risks then in the context of what you've talked about? Not really. It really depends on what type of risk we are taking about. Because if we avoid all of them, we are probably parking our money under our mattress. It's not really going to get us anywhere, Right. It's, it's more about being open-minded to and, and being educated on what those risks are. Yeah, the risk, yeah. yeah, the risk is unknown, but when we know it, it's no, no longer a risk. So yes, we should avoid all the risks because it, it means that it's all unknown. But when we know them, but then there are a few things, you know, the nature, the force of nature, we can't really avoid. That's what we have to cover ourselves with the right insurance in place. Yeah, yeah, extremely well said. So I, I know you, you've actually uh, written an ebook specifically around risk. Uh, how can uh, listeners uh, get a get a copy of that? Sure. So, um, so the background of that was that uh, I was looking for the risk in, in property investing. I couldn't really find much of material there. So I was then preparing a book, writing a book. So there's it's a, a specific chapter on the risk, but I didn't want to do hold back, and I actually released an ebook on that. So. It's very much available on uh, my website, which is www.getrare.com.au slash resources. That's where you can see all the resources and one of them is over there. Brilliant. Excellent, mate. Well, look, uh, thanks for these very timely reminders, Rusty. And, and thanks again for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, the takeaways here are very clear. Without risk, there's no reward. And as the great athlete Jerry Rice once said, today you need to do what others won't so tomorrow you can do what others can't because only those who risk going too far can possibly find out how far it's possible to go. So if you want to manage your investment risks to gain greater property rewards, start by grabbing yourself a copy of Rusty's great book, The Property Blueprint at www.getrare.com.au. You're watching Realty Talk, your trusted voice for all things property. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. KnowHow has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less, and live your legacy. Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au. Greetings and welcome. Now, whether it be in property, in the sack, or on the track, 
One of life's biggest misconceptions is that size determines performance. And I should know because I've been trying to convince my wife of this for years. Now, real estate capital growth rates in a number of property markets across Australia, along with our nation's recent performance in the Olympics, is absolutely compelling proof that size doesn't matter. So to discuss the evidence of this in the property sphere, we're joined by thought-leading property market analyst and head of research at National Buyers Agency Propertyology, Simon Presley, who's recently analysed our nation's best performing property markets over the last five years. So welcome back to the show, Simon. Thanks, Bushy. Thanks for having me back, mate. Yes, I've got to admit, it was the Olympics that motivated me writing this particular research report. Um, I love numbers, as you know, and uh, when the Olympics were on and we um, we did a wonderful job as a country, we finished sixth in the world um, from a link Olympic performance, and I sort of thought, geez, that's not bad for a small nation. How big are we? We're the 55th largest country in the world, and I thought, well, I know that property, um, in, in, especially in Australia, is full of stories like that, so that's the motivation for this particular report. Well, beautifully read and uh, very relevant to property as you're about to reveal to us. So getting into the meat of that subject, uh, which property markets uh, have won the gold, the silver and the bronze medals for best performing property markets over the last five years and why? And how do they rank in size? Yeah, well, before we do the gold, silver, bronze, perhaps the um, the equivalent of the Australian Olympic performance in real estate perspective is the beautiful New South Wales regional city of Orange officially our 56th largest city, population of about 42,000 people, ranked eighth overall, blew every single capital city out of the market wow. with 78% capital growth over the last five years. Impressive. Impressive. The gold medal, this might not surprise too many people, uh, Byron Bay, but people might not might be surprised to learn that Byron Bay is our 73rd largest city, only got 36,000 people, 105% capital growth over the last five years. In the same neck of the woods, about uh, one hour away from Byron, um, is a um, beautiful seaside town called King Kingscliff. 9,000 people, Bushy. 9,000. 9,000 people. 103% capital growth. It's, uh, we might call that real estate on Viagra. <laughs> Well, we'll bring bring up the uh, capital growth chart in a minute that uh, shows uh, all of these so that uh, we, we can all enjoy that. But uh, yeah, continue there, Simon. You're right. And the bronze medal, another tiny town. Um, most people probably wouldn't even know where this is on the map. Wonthaggy in Victoria, east of Melbourne, population 5,000 people, capital growth 95% over the last five years. Full list of all, all these locations from best to form down to number 100 is on the Propertyology website. Yeah, nice work. So uh, how do these sort of results then compare to the ranking of the major capitals, Simon? Well, if we bring up a graphic, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of summarise how our uh, our capitals perform, but the, you know, while I'm talking through that, there's a few other non-capital city locations that aren't so big in population size that people can um, read for themselves. But our best performed capital city was ranked 13th overall in Australia. That was Hobart with 69% capital growth. Um, Hobart's actually had a 120% increase in its median house price over the last seven years. But over the last five years, which is the period that we did this report, it was 69% ranked 13th. The next biggest, uh, the next best performed capital city, Bushy, was another low profile capital city, Canberra. Canberra was ranked 40th overall with 48% capital growth. 
Another capital city is all the way down at 94th, and that's Australia's fourth biggest city. Proof that size is no measurement whatsoever for performance. Perth had 7% capital growth for the entire five-year period of time, um, and Perth's population growth was actually higher than Sydney's. Interesting. Sydney's only had 7% capital growth. Um, our two biggest cities, Melbourne and Sydney, were you know in the mid to high 30% range. Uh, Melbourne was ranked 61st and Sydney was ranked 63rd. Brisbane and Adelaide um, ranked 71st and 73rd respectively, um, with about 25% capital growth um, there. A couple of other um, for a bit of interest, uh, Gold Coast, um, mediocre performance uh, relative to the best performers, only 32% over the last five years. Wollongong um, was exactly the halfway point. So it was ranked 50th uh, with 46%. So real mixed bag and absolute proof that size has nothing to do with real estate performance. Yeah, love it. Well, uh, sort of continuing on that sort of size theme then, uh, when considering other aspects of size, what impact, if any, has population growth, location, age, proximity to water or climate had on property performance then, Simon? Yeah, and while we're about to answer that, if we'll bring up our last last graphic, it's got some completely different locations spread all over Australia. So you can see some tangible proof to back up what, um, my answers to that question. Yeah. Uh, there is no relevance whatsoever, Bushy, with the age of a city. There is, there's no locations in Australia that aren't well-established. Uh, you know, some might might be um, you know, Canberra is one of our newest cities, although it's the nation's capital. It's about 100 years old. But most locations in Australia are somewhere between, you know, 150 years of age to 200 years of age. So they're all well established. Yep. Um, so age is not an issue. Climate's not an issue. Um, you know, Hobart is one of our cooler, coolest climates, um, as of, as are Canberra. And we just saw they were the two best performed capital cities. Canberra is an inland location. Um, Hobart's a coastal location. Darwin's, Darwin is arguably our hottest climate. You know, Darwin's had a decade, whilst it's, it's quite some time since we've seen it, but Darwin had a decade where it literally outperformed every location in Australia, not in one year, across an entire 10-year period of time. So inland, seaside, hot, cold, nothing at all to do with property market performance. will affect us as people, what we like and what we don't like, um, but it doesn't um, correlate through to property market performance. And uh, population, popula yeah, population growth, where does that fit? Yeah, um, it's, it has some influence, but a lot of people would think it has the biggest influence. It's nowhere near it. We've, we've discussed this a lot in, in other shows over the yep. years. Um, some people, I think, have, have, have enjoyed the case studies to back up the statements and others have found it, uh, just haven't believed it. Well, have a think of what's happening in Australia right now. We've got the second biggest property boom in our 230-year history at a time when the nation's population growth is the lowest it's been for more than 100 years. We've got to go right back to World War One when Australia's population growth rate was as low as this. So it's never been a major issue. Yeah. Um, to give you some, some recent um, statistical proof of that, the last 10 years of population data takes us through to June 2020. That's the most recent ABS data. Yep. Brisbane had 21% population growth over the last 10 years. Um, second um, of the capital cities only to Melbourne but it was one of the weakest performed property markets of our capital cities at that period of time. Perth was only just behind it with 19% population growth. So it was higher than Sydney's population growth across that entire 10 years. 
Houses and apartments in Perth declined in value across 10 years. Hobart had one of the lowest population growth rates at 11%, but one of the best performed property markets in Australia. And there are umpteen regional examples that we could use when we talk about their population performance compared to their real estate performance. Yeah, good call. It's 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 the old story, isn't it, Simon? It's it's a, about following the jobs and the in the income because that's uh, in the supply and demand equation. It's there's no rocket rocket science in any of that. But that's uh, right. We all buy. We all move from time to time. I, I couldn't imagine there would be a human being anywhere that was born in one house and end up dying in the same property. Didn't didn't move. So whenever we move, either we're renting or buying, we trigger a demand for housing. But we are only born once. So we're only adding to the population once. Um, but when we participate in real estate, that's where the demand comes from. So the things that are common to the big critical mass is local confidence, which comes from local economic conditions um, and our financial capacity to participate in real estate. And the second, uh, well, probably equally important um, consideration is local supply volumes that directly influence the number of choices that buyers have and the pressure that's in a market. Yeah, beautifully said as always, and I really appreciate those very perceptive observations, Simon, and, and thanks again for your generous time on the show today. My pleasure. Good on you, Bushy. Thanks, mate. Well, uh, it's very clear that in mixing a couple of metaphors, and you're going to like this, Simon, if size mattered, then the elephant would be, wouldn't, would be king of the jungle, not the lion, as, and I know you're a big ah. Lions fan, and it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the fight in the dog that counts. So, uh, Uh, This is very evident in property markets as Simon has just shown us. So if you want to secure the highest performing properties, think national, think regional and think propertyology. More to come here on Realty Talk. Property depreciation is the natural wear and tear of a building and its assets. Property investors can claim depreciation as a tax deduction each financial year. Depreciation is a non-cash deduction. This means you don't need to spend any money in order to claim it. On average, BMT tax depreciation fined residential investors almost $9,000 in first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation free quote. Hi and welcome. Now, the Adelaide property market is currently enjoying its highest growth spurt in values in over 30 years, with recent CoreLogic figures confirming values have increased by over 20% in the last 12 months, with the median property value still being a very affordable $543,000 and rents increasing by an average of 9.2%. So the big question on everyone's lips is what's actually driving this historic growth? Well, to shed some light on this, we're joined by leading Adelaide real estate agent and host of the popular pizza and property podcast, Todd Sloan from Tim's Real Estate. Welcome back to Realty Talk, Todd. Thanks for having me again, Bushy. Pleasure to be here. Always uh, great to get you on and share your words of wisdom, mate. Uh, interesting topic, and you're right in the, the cut and thrust of what's happening there in Adelaide. So tell us, uh, what's your read on the major demand driver for Adelaide's property market? A huge part of it now is coming from the eastern states. We're seeing a bit from Melbourne, uh, but mainly, really, a lot of it's from Sydney. The amount of phone calls I'm getting from people that are just saying, I'm looking at buying an investment property for six months, 12 months, that kind of thing, just to like plant the seed. But then we want to actually move over here. So we've been dealing with lots of Sydney investors for a long time. That That's a pretty standard thing for us in Adelaide, but it's the move over here part. That's the part that seems to really be changing now. And I think 
it's not just people planting a little bit of a seed. It's it's people really wanting to to bring their wealth over that I feel is going to have a huge impact on the the South Australian property market. Yeah, that's massive. So you know, drilling in a bit then, why are so many interstaters buying property in Adelaide then, Todd? Well, I think a lot of it's coming down to affordability. So like what you were talking about then, the the five, was it 550,000? I think you were saying roughly for the property price. Yeah. I think the median house price, so not median property price, because naturally that takes units, land, everything into account. Good median goal. house price now for, for Adelaide is something like 667,000. Okay. Right. That, that's great for us in Adelaide, but compare that to, to over in Sydney, it's a touch. It's literally, a, I think $800 under 1.5 million is the median house. So the the dispar- like the disparity between the two now is just gigantic. So people that otherwise just couldn't actually live in a house, they're they're looking looking at living in Sydney. They're looking at buying a unit. So if they really want our backyard, they really want to have the the kind of two point five children running around with a dog and that kind of stuff. Moving to Adelaide is actually a really good option for these people. Plus now with job vacancies at something like thirteen percent for Adelaide, there's a lot of employment floating around. So for me, I think it's chasing lifestyle and, and actually chasing opportunity. Yeah, that's, that's spot on. So in addition to those, are there any other key drivers that you think are behind this at the moment, Todd? Well, the, the lifestyle factor, I think, is probably one of the, the big ones. But really, I, I think that the major one is is the difference in, in price. Because if, if you're looking now at buying a house in, in Sydney, even in the entry levels of the market, you're spending a million dollars. And to live in an entry level for that, like you're getting something pretty damn nice in Adelaide for a million dollars. So that that's one of the big key drivers that I'm seeing. But also from the investment side as well, that is still definitely a big portion of it. We offer better rental yields. Finding like 2% gross rental yield, 3% gross rental yield, pretty standard in Sydney. Finding four and five in Adelaide, even with the boom that we've had, pretty standard in Adelaide. So the returns we're offering as well as the lifestyle just really seem to be adding up for a lot of people now. Yeah, makes sense. So, and you've touched on some of this already, but uh, what and where are they looking to buy and, and what basis are they doing it, i.e. owner-occupied investors or, or others? How does that look? So a little bit of everywhere, and this is one of the benefits I have that I don't just work in one little patch. I, I'm seeing a lot more from people in the entry levels. So we're talking like down south, the, the Huntfield Heights, Morfitt Vale, Christie's Downs, Christie's Beach. That's going really, really well interstate. And a lot of the people there, I think they're more the demographic that would otherwise just be buying a unit if, if they were in, in Sydney. So that's that's a really good sign for it. But the other side of it is more your, your higher end property, one street back from the beach. We're talking like Henley Beach South. We're talking the Western suburbs in, in my land sort of area. That's doing incredibly well as well. Because now again, like I said, buying something for 1.2 million over here, gets you something pretty special. 1.2 million over there doesn't really cut the mustard the same way. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. So what ongoing impact is this likely to have on the Adelaide property market, do you think, Todd? I think the biggest thing is that if it's not people just putting their money in for just for the investment side, if it's people actually bringing their lives over, it's the real long-term impact that I actually see because, I mean, money just moves around. That's that's really all it is. It's it's a currency. Like it comes from the word current. Like it, it needs to move. And the more people we can have moving their money around in our state, in, in South Australia, I think that's only going to really mean good things for, for the state longer term. Totally agree. Exciting times. Uh, no doubt about it, Todd. And uh, I really want to thank you for sharing those interesting insights with us today. And thanks again for joining us on the show. No problems, mate. Thanks for having me. 
Well, it appears that Australia's best kept secret of Adelaide, which is constantly ranked in the best places to live in the world, may not be a secret for much longer. And if you want to keep ahead of all the property secrets in Adelaide and across the country, make sure you tune into Todd's popular pizza and property podcast. Stay with us for more here on Realty Talk. Hi, and welcome. Now, as you're no doubt aware, the property market across the country is currently going gangbusters as a FOMO frenzy continues to drive property prices to record levels. Now, this has resulted in a high proportion of properties being sold at auction, a form of sale that's designed to put ultimate pressure on you as a buyer. So in order to equip you with the knowledge and skills to improve your chances of buying a property under auction conditions, this week we continue our special auction series that brings together and draws on a collection of advice from a wide range of industry leaders, buyers, specialists, and auctioneers, along with my own experience that I've gleaned over the last 35 years. So to summarize where you're at so far and the auction preparation process from our previous auction tips, you've attended lots of auctions for similar properties, especially with the auctioneer that's gonna be selling the property that you're interested in. You've preset your dream price, your fair price, and your walkaway price limits while avoiding round or even numbers. You've also organised a full finance pre-approval with a comfortable buffer. You've also completed a professional independent building and pest inspection and your conveyancer has reviewed the property contract and you've negotiated and agreed any contact, any condition variations in writing in advance. And then on the day in the lead up to the bidding war, you've adopted a confident success mindset. You go in expecting the unexpected. You understand the auction process and all the jargon fully. You've arrived and registered early. You're keeping calm at all times. And if you're really smart, you've engaged a professional buyer's agent to represent you to eliminate the biggest risk to you buying the property. And that's you and your emotions. And you're also prepared to avoid the seven deadly sins of auctions. You won't talk to your partner during the bidding. You won't phone a friend. You won't let your body language give you away. You won't bring the whole family along. You won't overdress. You won't be rude to the auctioneer, you won't make silly bids, and you won't bid against yourself. In addition, you won't fall for the auctioneer's traps, and you've made sure that you've left your competitive ego in the car. To adopt the right auction strategy, you've got a handle on whether the auction pressure is on the buyers due to high competition, or whether the seller is under pressure, as the dynamics and power balance are different with every auction, and you need to adjust your approach to suit the circumstances. To assist with this, you've arrived an hour early, you've sized up your competition, and you've chosen the best prominent vantage point up the front, close to the center stage, that is just the side of the auctioneer, so you can banter with them and establish your confidence, while also reading the play and watching your competition's body language while you remain detached. You're also mindful of your own body language, which needs to exude quiet confidence. And you're paying close attention to the body language of the auctioneer and the other bidders, looking for signs of nervous glances and whispered chatter that indicates that your competition is at or near their bidding limit, so that you can then consider delivering a quick, confident knockout counter bid to crush their hopes. Now, this pre-bidding preparation combination will ensure that you're fully prepared and calm, comfortable and confident on the auction day, as auction performance is all about feeling and projecting confidence. With sufficient preparation and the right positioning, 
Your next step is employing the right psychology when it comes to bidding. The key is to make all the other potential buyers believe that your pockets are bottomless to try and scare them off. Remember that auctions are designed to put the seller and the auctioneer in the strong control position while minimizing the bargaining power of you and other buyers. So how can you rescue back some level of control while convincing other buyers that you're confidently there to win the property come what may? Well, unfortunately, there's no magic bullet or one size fits all psychological approach to this as every auction operates under different dynamics. So let's run through a number of strategic approaches so that you can choose and adapt the ones that appears to fit your style and the auction conditions best on the day. The key here is that you need to place your bids deliberately and strategically and not allow the auctioneer to dictate the terms or build competitive momentum. So you need to develop a strategy for how you're going to place your bids. Again, the focus is all around you feeling confident and demonstrating quiet confidence to all and sundry on the day. And confidence is all about control, both real and perceived control. Remember, it's about controlling the bidding. Now at an auction, you've got two types of adversaries. There are the other bidders and the auctioneer. The auctioneer wants to run the bidding up as fast as possible, hoping to take big rises and using their bag of tricks, their jokes and their one-liners to maintain the bidding momentum. So to rescue back some level of control, you can demonstrate this in a combination of five key ways, control and consistency, control of timing and when to place bids, control of the tempo and the speed of your bids, control of your bid size increments, and control of your counter bidding. So let's break these down and discuss them in a little bit more detail. Let's start with control of consistency. In simple terms, you need to be consistent. Nothing shows intent to win like consistency throughout the bidding. It can help to bid immediately after an opponent to show them that you're serious. If they feel like you won't give up, you increase your chances of winning, but remember to stick with your limits. Next comes control of your timing and when to bid. And the most important thing to remember here is that, is that inactivity is not a strategy. If you don't bid, you're not going to win. And according to Justin Nickerson, who's conducted nearly 7,000 auctions, bidding actually increases your confidence and puts pressure on rivals that can become overwhelming for them. Often those who think they can swoop, swoop in at the end succumb to the pressure that just builds and builds and they walk away having done nothing with the bidding paddle still stuck in their pocket. So if you give the impression that you've got money and lots more money left, your competitors will sometimes just give in and give up. And there are three main phases where you can control the timing of your bidding, depending on the dynamics on the day. You can bid first and early. You can bid mid-auction once the auctioneers announce that the reserve's been reached and the property's on the market, or you can bid late and last. Now let's dig into these three bidding phases. In some circumstances, that's a good strategy to lob in early with hefty bids in an attempt to intimidate the competition, which may be a high risk approach for inexperienced buyers, but can work well if delivered confidently and calmly. If you go big early, 
your confidence may pay off, but you need to be mindful that you may just push up the competition and the value of the property. So be careful when you use this approach. At other times, avoid bidding unless the property has met the reserve. It may be better to wait until later in the auction after the auctioneer declares that the property has reached the reserve price, which is the minimum amount that the seller is going to accept. And it's actually on the market before placing your first bid so that you can actually gauge the competition. In the past, less skilled auctioneers would call the property on the market as soon as it hit the reserve. Today, however, skilled auctioneers won't immediately advise the crowd when the auction's been met. So as a good confident bidder, you should have no qualms about asking the auctioneer if the property is on the market yet. You may or may not get an answer to that question, but it's worth asking and continuing to ask during the auction. The third option is to bid late and last. The strategy here is to hold off making your first bid until the final calls begin, when the auctioneer starts the old going once, going twice routine, and then come out with guns blazing with a series of short, sharp, confident bids that blow away the flagging competition. Now, whatever your bid starting strategy, your goal at auction must always focus on being the last one standing to either be the winning bidder or have the first right to negotiate if the property is actually passed in. Because if the property is going to pass into the highest bidder, you want to make sure that that person is you. Now, the next key element is to control the speed or the tempo of the auction. Momentum plays a big role in determining the outcome of an auction. Generally, the faster the bidding, the more likely bidders are to get swept up in the emotions of the occasion and feel pressured into placing high bids. So wherever possible, slow down and or mix up the speed and tempo of bidding to better control the auction to ensure that your bidding lasts as long as possible. At other times, you need to bid quickly. Bidding quickly puts pressure back on the other bidders and creates the illusion that your budget's unlimited. It makes it seem like you've got no concern as to where the bidding's going to stop. And remember that it doesn't have to be a huge jump in bid price each time, but making a quick decision leaves other buyers feeling like they're under siege. But if you want to buy the property for less, it can help you if you slow the bidding down and do your best to take some control of the auction. One of the best ways to do this is to change up and down the amount of your bid rises. You're bound to get some rejection from the auctioneer, but however, that's just part of the game. If the auctioneer refuses your bid, then they'll need to get someone else to bid. But if there's only one bidder, which is when this tactic actually works the best, what can they do if you sit on your bid? Eventually, the auctioneer will either accept your bid, convince another buyer to give them what they want, or they can make a vendor bid. Now, a lot of the time, and especially early in the going, an auctioneer will try to advance the bidding by $50,000 or even $100,000 or more at a time. The trick here, don't let them. You can control the flow of the auction by bidding in increments of $20,000, $10,000 or even $5,000. When an auction goes down to the wire, you can even have bids moving up by only a few hundred dollars at a time. After all, you're the one who knows your limit. Again, slow down and control the auction to see how long you can last. The next strategy to control the auction and set the pace is through your bid size increments. Now data from auction streaming service Gavel has revealed that the average increment between bids at auctions is just over $10,000. And the most common knockout bid is a $10,000 bid. So the first step here in controlling your bid size increments is to avoid round numbers. 
According to leading auctioneer, Damien Cooley, if you're able to change the pace of the auction by bidding in odd increments, it keeps your competition guessing and it makes it more difficult for the auctioneer to add the numbers up, which actually slows down the pace. Remember that auctions thrive on momentum. So controlling the pace of bidding is the key to keeping the price low. If you want to control the increments, the first bid you make can be under a round number. For example, don't start the bidding at $500,000. Start at $495,000. Bidding will then be more likely to continue in increments of $5,000 rather than $10,000. In contrast, bidding big can be important at the business end of the auction. Let's say your limit's $750,000 and the bid's at $740,000 and they've been going up in increments of $5,000. Then finish strong and go straight to $750,000. This shows confidence and at least you get the chance to put the bid in at your maximum amount. Conversely, starting with lower increments can slow the auction and encourage people, uh, encourage more people to bid. So the larger the increment rise, the more likely it's gonna scare away your competition. This means bidding in odd numbers, which can help to throw your competition off course a little. Most people will start round numbers as a budget, and so will perhaps stop at say $700,000. But if you can bid to $703,000 for that little extra, it may be the difference in winning. Now in a similar fashion, bidding in odd increments like $8,000 installments rather than the 5,000 may slow the momentum of the auction as the auctioneer may need to take a moment to add up the numbers. For example, if the auctioneer is asking for a $10,000 bid, you might give them a $13,000 bid. By bidding a few curly numbers, you'll be surprised by how many auctioneers will actually struggle to add them up, which will help to slow down the bidding, particularly when you're nearing your walkaway limit. So modulating the pace of an auction by requesting varying smaller, larger and odd bidding increments, which is perfectly legal, and then quickly countering higher offers can help you to actually remain in the driver's seat. In this way, by breaking up the tempo, you can set your own pace. So when you bid, don't go at the same pace of the other bidders. For example, generally they add 5,000, then you add 5,000, they add 5,000 and so on in a kind of never ending seesaw effect. So if your budget's a million dollars, why start at 500,000 and work your way up so slowly? Instead, instead, consider starting by setting your own pace by bidding at two to three times their price and without the slightest hesitation. If they bid 5,000, you bid 10,000 or maybe even 15,000. If someone tries to drag you back to the $5,000 seesaw, raise their price by 15,000 again, or this time perhaps even 20 grand. You might even be really close to your maximum budget, but the other buyers have no idea that this is the case. They may feel like your pockets go way deeper than theirs and they might just give up. In other circumstances, big bidding increments may not actually benefit you. For example, you may choose to bid only in $1,000 increments once the property has been announced that it's on the market. The other bidders can jump all over the place with $5,000 to $10,000 rises. But can you, you can meet them with more $1,000 bids until you actually wear them down. The final area of confidence control revolves around your counter bidding. The key here is that when you counter bid, do it quickly and confidently. Bidding quickly after another bid's received lets other bidders know that you're serious and will also help you to identify who your competition is 
And it's also going to help you to identify uh, and prevent you from falling behind your other competitors. So that completes our discussion on employing the right psychology and bidding strategies. In our next installment of our auction winning series, we're actually going to unpack specific bidding tactic options. That's more food for thought. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance. Stay tuned for more. Well, that's a wrap on this week's show. A big thanks to our special guests, Rusty Vibhav, Simon Presley, and Todd Sloan. And a reminder that you can see all of our shows at realty.com.au. And while you're there, make sure you check out one of Australia's most extensive range of properties for sale from over 7,000 agents nationally. Thanks again to realty.com.au and BMT Tax Depreciation for their ongoing support. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Miss something in this week's show or want to catch up on past shows? Do it anytime at realty.com.au, where we connect buyers, sellers, and agents differently. 